0: The day Markov was stabbed by, by poison, Markov and me we were having a cup of tea. I can still remember how he s- suddenly he said, Georgi said, um, I feel I'm getting fever and I'm getting weak. I don't feel well. I'll go home.
1: This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Svetlana came from a dissident Jewish family opposed to Soviet rule in Latvia. Her parents survived World War II, but during the Stalin era, two members of her family were held in the gulags. It was almost impossible to leave the Soviet Union. However, in 1971, the first opportunities for Jewish emigration appeared... And Svetlana, then aged 12, and her family left legally. At the age of 16, she's staying with her uncle in London, where she comes across Bush House, the home of the BBC Russian service. Svetlana manages to get a job there and begins to get promoted. She meets Georgi Markov, who is assassinated by Bulgarian security services on Waterloo Bridge in London. She's later introduced to Oleg, the chief editor of the Russian service of Radio Liberty, a CIA finance station beaming Western propaganda into the Soviet Union. This meeting has a profound effect on her life. The battle to preserve Cold War history is ongoing, and your support can provide me with the ammunition to continue to keep this podcast on the air. Via a simple monthly donation... You'll become one of our community and get a sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subjects so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Svetlana to our Cold War Conversation.
0: I was born in a Jewish family. My father, my late father and my mother, my late mother, they were both born shortly before Latvia. Was annexed by the Soviet Union. So, as children, well, as youngsters, teenagers, they could still remember the free uh, Latvia. And they were quite shocked for the rest of their lives, I think, with what happened to them. And uh, especially interesting is the story of my father. His native language was German, a German like many. Uh, Jews, he was Jewish just like my mother he was from a well-off Jewish family on the outskirts of Riga today the city is called uh, Lyapaya, Libau in the old times so anyhow when when the war started in 1941 according to the Soviet Union, I mean the second world war, my father didn't know a word of um, Russian uh, but he and his friends, who were quite um, active in the Zionistic movement of Latvia, knew about the killing of the Jewish people. So he was wise. Together with his friends, he was about—he was about—I think he was just—he just turned nine, 19 or so, so or maybe 20. So he was wise not to wait for uh, in Riga for the Germans to come. They went towards. Uh, The Red Army, when they ran into the Red Army, uh, they didn't know a word of uh, of Russian. So it took them about two weeks to prove uh, that they were not fascists. So uh, they were lucky not to be killed uh, by the Russians. In fact, there is a story that there were five of them, and one of the persons was killed because they couldn't get a translator soon enough.
1: Incredible. Incredible. Can you tell me what role your father had in the Red Army during World War Two?
0: So, it, so eventually, when the Russians uh, took my father came into the army. Uh, he was a student of uh, medicine, uh, but not 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 uh, not yet qualified. He he didn't finish his studies. You know, some years ago, about a year ago, when the when the when Russia started publishing their archives. I found the card of my father there. And I was surprised to see that he went all through the war. uh, He reached the rank of colonel. He was head of a medical unit. But because he was Jewish, he was not quite allowed to to be in the forefront. So second line. Anyhow, he finished uh, the war in the rank of um, uh, colonel. After the Second World War, the German prisoners of of war were slowly sent back uh, to Germany. And uh, my father couldn't leave the army after the end of the war because he was ordered to stay as a translator for the prisoners in the prisoner camp and prisoners were slowly returned to Germany. My father was not released. It was during the Stalin's time. So just in case, I guess, to make sure that my father turned sides and stay as a German spy in USSR, he was uh, uh, put in Gulag. And it was 1953 when, when Stalin died, when my father was released. And the same fate happened to my uncle. We say in Russian, uh, "From bell to bell," he stayed for 15 years in Gulag because he he told a joke uh, about Stalin. So I'm a late child to my father because he was over 40 when I was born. And these stories that uh, uh, you know were told in the family, but really very in a very quiet manner. You can imagine what, what kind of atmosphere uh, we had. Basically, all my relatives were victims of the Stalinist uh, repressions.
1: It's hard to imagine living under that level of uh, repression, but I appreciate you sharing that, Svetlana. Did you have any relatives in the West?
0: One of my mother's brothers, in 1953, six i think it was when um jews of polish descent were allowed to go to israel to leave russia so my um mother's brother who i only met then later when we went uh, to the west he left immediately uh, uh, to, to israel because his his wife was a, a polish jewess to say that uh, it was a liberal jewish uh, family is uh, saying too little, because my, my parents belonged to a Zionist group, a clandestine group in Riga, who, it was led by Yosef Kuskovsky, and uh, this group was clandestine, it was of traditional Jews, not religious Jews, uh, not specifically studying Torah, but studying uh, the language, Hebrew and thinking when uh, they, were, they would be allowed to leave the Soviet Union. And this is how I grew up with uh, such people uh, surrounding me. What happened in the end, uh, maybe you recall there was a hijack, this hijack in or attempted hijack in St. Petersburg, when a group of uh, uh, mostly Jewish people, Silva Zalmanson and Kuznetsov Anatoly and Mendeleevich, uh, there were 11 of them. So um, my parents spoke Yiddish at home, not German, but Yiddish. And they thought that I don't understand it because I never talked back to them. I answered them in, in, in uh, Russian, especially my father. He spoke uh, Russian with a very strong Baltic uh, German accent. Anyhow, my parents spoke about this hijack at home because we're we're second line organizers of this group, and um, from what I understand, I was really little at that time, uh, phone calls were coming in from the United States or from abroad, and every day uh, the phone calls came to a different phone number. This was in an attempt to make it a little bit more difficult for KGB to find out what's going on. So I remember when, with my father, we went uh, to the central telephone station. This is how it was done those days. And and we ordered, we paid, I think, six or seven rubles, which is a lot of money at that time, and in order to speak uh, some number abroad for five minutes. Then I remember my parents tell each other in, in Yiddish that it will not work out, that the KGB found about it, that the people will be, the hijackers will be arrested when they cl- climb the first steps of the airplane. And this is, in fact, what happened.
1: We have an episode that covers this hijacking attempt. It's episode two five eight. There'll be a link in the episode information.
0: I was a little girl. I was twelve by then. I was a little girl, and I got so offended by it, by by the fact that people were not allowed to go. I I decided to do something. There was some kind of um, poem from a a French poet who was a communist, but he 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 wrote a, a poem, something like, Let My People Go. Let's uh, summarize. Like, Let My People Go. So there were no uh, Xerox, uh, xerox mach- machines at uh, that time. It was 1971. So I wrote this po- poem by hand 20 times or 15 times. I gave it to every... Jewish classmate uh, in my school. At the same time, I was, uh, it's interesting, my mother, uh, although it's it's not common, but my um, my mother insisted that I um, train, you know, figure skating, which is quite a hard sport. It's not common for, for quiet girls from a Jewish family, maybe languages and piano, which I also did. But in fact, uh, English and figure skating was. Um, it was a clandestine pl- plan of my mother that if I am good and if I go to international competitions, uh, that I will stay abroad. Like I will not return to to, uh, to the Soviet Union. I was uh, training in the national team, and after school, uh, I I went to train. And I came back very late. Maybe uh, it was late, nine o'clock in the evening, uh, because uh, we practiced four or five hours a day at the skating rink. So I come home and I see a black car. A black car, um, like we called it Varanok, a black Pobeda, uh, which was um, driven normally by... Uh, high uh, officials, party officials. But the black ones were for the KGB. So can, can you imagine a 12-year-old girl? I come back from from training and uh, I see this car in front of our house. And I remember what I did during the day at school. But what should I, you know, I decided, uh, what can I do? I decided to go home, uh, to, to go upstairs uh and to my surprise uh the person who who came to visit us was um the father of my classmate a russian girl uh, he was vice deputy of of the ministry who allowed people to go abroad and emigration so he's talking to my parents and he's saying uh, my name is, uh, you know, my, my born name is Yeta. So he says, this girl is going to, uh, to my parents, this girl is going to be in, uh, in prison because she is juvenile and you are responsible for her. And if she continues like this and she's a champion in figure skating. So he says to my parents, please get uh, get an invitation to go to Israel as soon as possible and I will let you go. This was in February 1971, and in June we left. It all went very quickly. My um, other, my mother's other brother, she had three all in all. He lived in London since late forties, so under under a different name. Uh, but he, after Stalin's death, he reached us by writing. You know, he wrote us, uh, my mother a letter and, and his brother, he wrote the family a letter from London. So officially he was uh, a different surname, but uh, it was my mother's uh, brother. And he arranged very quickly. He came to Moscow under his clandestine, uh, under his new unda- and identity, and uh, which was a risk for him. I remember that this meeting. I remember going to, to Moscow to, to see him. And he arranged for an invitation uh, to go to Israel, and we were able to leave within four months.
1: Were some of your other Jewish friends at school able to emigrate at this time?
0: And everybody uh, was talking about uh, the possibility of leaving Latvia. And um, in my class, there were maybe out of 30, 18 Jewish students. And today there is one of them, just one of them, who stayed behind. Within a year, the class was dismantled because already when we were the first ones to go. But we were like saying, uh, like, uh, uh, see you soon. Of course, nobody was sure of that, and it took some people, you know, longer to leave. But uh, it uh, the the feeling was uh, that. We will never come back to Latvia, but the feeling was that we will see each other again.
1: How did you leave the Soviet Union
0: uh, at that time? You know, the only possibility was to uh, to, to leave um, Russia by train to go via Minsk to Vienna. And in Vienna, it, uh, people, the Jews who the Jewish families were not allowed to carry um, any money on them, even not uh, even not a passport. There was some kind of uh, um, pink paper like smaller than an A4 folded with a a, uh, photograph and uh, the name scribbled on it uh, with a stamp, uh, allowed to leave uh, the Soviet Union for permanent residency abroad. So it it was not even a passport. Uh, we were like I remember that people were afraid, um, what will happen? will somebody meet us in in Vienna because um, pro person grown up, they were allowed uh, to to take hundred dollars with them. So two hundred dollars in the pocket. I was a teenager, so nothing for me. and uh, all all the families uh, coming to Vienna, and not just mine, just ours, maybe ten families from Riga. And uh, the journey took us a bit over 24 hours. So anyhow, we arrive in Vienna, uh, and uh, we get off the train, thinking, "Who will be there to meet us?" You know, the famous Sochnut, uh, the agency, the the Jewish agency for Israel people. Sochnut, they were there. They were there, standing on the platform, waving. And they took us, uh, at at, at those times, they took us to a castle which they rented. It was called uh, Schonbrunn, and uh, this is where we got to stay in the first days. And then the families or the people were asked whether they wanted to to go to Israel or to the United States, where many families uh, had their relatives. we um we were not sure but uh, the next day my mother's uh, brother simon from london arrived in 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 vienna and by taxi he he took us from sachnund he took it, he took us over he took us to a hotel in central vienna uh, opposite the famous um um, cathedral, uh, St Stefan's Cathedral. I can remember it was opposite a uh, big, uh, big like in every European city, I guess, a big shopping mall uh, across uh, uh, this square. And my mother was very worried that I will go into the shopping mall and will be stunned by by uh, by the riches, by by the lavishness. But, but it was like i walked into that I, I remember i walked into that uh shopping mall like i belonged there i was not surprised it was like i was born into it and it was more my mother that was uh surprised and uh in in um like she wanted to treat my uncle to something he loved uh, he loved the home cooking, but she couldn't cook. But um, we brought some herring, some special herring uh, for, with us from Riga, pickled herring. And she decided to do some uh, like uh, toast with uh, with herring. But in, in the hotel room, there was no fridge. So um, she opened the, the window and uh, she put uh, uh, the sandwiches covered. So, can you imagine when my uncle arrives and she wants to treat him? She opens the window and San Stefan's uh, square, it's where all the pigeons like in the, in Venice, like millions of pigeons. So nothing they you know it was everything the, the, the treat was gone. I, 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 these are my first impressions of the West. Anyhow my uh, uh, my uncle was a champion. I don't know how he managed but, but but within 3 or 4 days uh he managed to get a permission uh, a visa like an entrance visa uh, for us uh, you know using these uh folded pieces of paper that we had not not even a passport he ma- he managed to get them stamped in the british embassy for us to go to to fly with with uh, with him to london
1: and what were your first impressions of london Compared to the Soviet Union,
0: we lived uh, uh, the the other side of Baker Street, street uh, Portman Mansions, and, of the street. But anyhow, be, be behind the Sherlock Holmes Museum, can you imagine? Uh, it's it's the best uh, the best location, uh, one of the best locations in London. Uh, my um, my uncle's uh, apartment there was small. My parents got a little bit uh, uh, not surprised but disappointed because they thought that he's a rich man, which he was, and living in such a small one-bedroom apartment in a very posh place but but small. Uh, as a kid i I was not intimidated by it. I liked it. Um, um, he, my uncle was he was really preparing uh, himself. For uh, for us to come, um, he purchased a house in northwest uh, London, not quite Golden Green, but not far away from there. And uh, this was meant to be for my family. It was uh, w- when we arrived. It was um, it was being renovated, so we went to look at it, and my fel- parents felt better. So in fact he uh, my, my uncle was prepared to stay in the small apartment like what my mother thought but he would give us a house uh, she didn't understand this uh, psychology i remember um, my first weeks uh, walking to selfridges and walking to uh, uh, to piccadilly i could speak english i do not I, I i didn't feel like i come came to this other capitalist world. I felt like I. I felt like I felt fell into place immediately.
1: I think you're twelve at this point. So, uh, what what do you do in London? Are you allowed to wander about on your own?
0: I was uh, allowed to walk on my own, but it, it it wasn't for too long because my mother and his uh, my mother didn't get along with her brother. And about um, two months later. Late, in late August, uh, my father decided that he will take the family to Israel. So there wasn't really time for me to go to school uh, because it was in the summer. And in August 71, we we left London and we went to Israel. And this is where I s- continued my studies. Uh, it was very fast. I have a nightmare still because I always skipped. Uh, I, I I guess my education in Riga, in this very uh, uh, elite school in, in 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 Latvia. I guess um, the education was very good because I I was just skipping classes. So I, very shortly in a year, I found myself in Israel. Uh, almost uh, reaching like what you you would call in in, in England A levels, my matriculation exams. in the meantime i I stayed in Israel less than two years in, and in those two years, I traveled twice back to London. My uncle felt that he could do maybe more for 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 me than my immigrant uh, parents. Uh, so I travelled uh, twice to London, and in 1973, in, in, in October, uh, my father died uh, dramatically, and I couldn't forgive my mother his death, so I ran away from home in Israel. And this is when my uncle finally decided to, to bring me back to London. So, um, I, I guess, yes, it was, again, some, sometimes, like in the spring of 1974, I was back to London for good. I was, I just turned 16, which is too early to go to university, but I matriculated in, um, I did my A-levels in Israel. So, uh, I theoretically, I could uh, study i could go to university because i had my exams but i was too young to be accepted i stayed with my uncle and uh i worked for his company for a while and then i decided to do something on my own i was an opera uh, for a short time like I, I i was not an easy child so i i was <laughs> Um, I was in an pair, and uh, one day I walked down uh, all, down the Strand, and I saw this house, Bush House, A Bush House that I remember because when I was still in Riga in Latvia, my uh, father would make me listen to the BBC in Russian, to the Russian service, and they always announced, after all, you know, during the program. You are listening to BBC Russian Service. The announcer would say, "We are broadcasting to you from Bush House, London." So, so I, I went to visit the Russian Service, of course. <laughs> um, I remembered the name of um, of one uh, commentator, which was Anatoly Maximovich Goldberg, and he he was previously working for um, not for the Russian Service but for the um, international. Uh, I think there is...
1: The BBC World Service. Absolutely, yeah.
0: absolutely. So uh, he was a very known and a very respectable commentator. And it, I was quite cheeky to say uh, that I want to see Anatoly Maximovich. Uh, but I guess he was so surprised uh, that somebody's a, a young girl, is asking for him so out of curiosity he went to meet to see me and I remember he said uh, he asked me can you type in Russian and I said no I can't because I can only like uh, I'm very proficient with uh, uh, with English uh, typewriter but I, uh, I will learn fast the layout and he said, okay, come back tomorrow and we will test you. And uh, in the morning I came back and during the night I borrowed out somewhere Russian, uh, a Russian typewriter with a Russian keyboard. And when I came back, uh, I, I said to to the person who was examining me that I can't uh, type fast yet because I only had one night to learn, but I will, the speed will come very quickly. I. I, I I was not, uh, you know, I I, I was a a little bit unconfident because I expected a little bit uh, something like uh, harder. The exam would be harder. So I was making excuses for myself. And after I was done with typing, my grammar was good in Russian, you know, my Russian grammar. I was 16, also too young to work, but they said, you come back. I remember the name of them. Mrs. Coleman, so she said, uh, 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 please come back uh, in two weeks. This is how long it will take us to uh, process your papers with the home office uh, to get a a work permission, work permit. So I think that was it. That was my destiny uh, because I still didn't have proper documents, I didn't return back to Israel, so my documents also were not extended. So I, I guess uh, this is this was my destiny because only such a strong company like BBC could um, could legalize, let's put it that way, get my pa- papers straight with work permit and all So I came back two weeks later and I was the youngest, I guess in the Russian service, I was the youngest um, employee, among all these uh, new immigrants, uh, mostly already new immigrants from the Soviet um, Union, all radio stations like Voice of America and Radio Liberty and BBC were trying to hire newcomers from the Soviet Union because the, the old guard, the old emigration, they were very getting old. Their Russian was not good anymore, not up, you know, like it was the Tsarist uh, language, and they needed a f- a f- a fresh uh, blood. Um, there were some extraordinary persons there from the first emigration. So people with highly highly cultured uh, people uh, with very, uh, let's say, uh, aristocratic uh, biographies. So on, on the one hand, but they were getting less and less. And 80% were already newcomers from the Soviet Union, the immigrants. They were all against the Soviet Union, very liberal, very dissident, mostly dissident. And this is how I, I guess, uh, had it not been BBC, um, I would have integrated completely into the... Uh, London alive and I probably would have forgotten Russian by now but I guess again it's destined for me not to I don't know which one would be better for me today I was young I could have become I could have become fully integrated but there you are and uh, I, I ended as the youngest employee in the Russian service of the BBC
1: did you ever meet Georgi Markov the uh, BBC Bulgarian Journalist who was assassinated by what's thought to be the Bulgarian secret services in London?
0: Of course. Uh, it, uh, the Bulgarian section was uh, on the same floor, just we, we occupied maybe 10 uh, offices, uh, like 10 rooms, and the Bulgarian section was the next. So it was only obvious that we would meet each other during. Uh, uh, during work, but um, it was also uh, uh, very common for us to go down to canteen, to the big BBC canteen. And uh, the day uh, Markov was stabbed by uh, by poison, by umbrella, uh, um, I remember it was Natasha Ray. Uh, she w- she ran away uh, in Al- uh, in Algeria. She didn't return. She was a Russian, not an ma- emigree, but um a defector a russian defector uh so it was her uh markov and me We were having a cup of tea and i it's still i can still remember how he suddenly he said Georgi said um i feel i'm getting fever and i'm getting weak i don't feel well i'll go home
1: wow so you were with Georgi markov the the same day that he was poisoned
0: Yes, he didn't mention anything about it. He just said that uh, he doesn't feel well and the next day he was in the hospital but they couldn't save him
1: What was he like? was he quite fun to be with?
0: Uh, he was absolutely um an outspoken very uh, very polite uh, a real uh, like we from the Soviet Union we were we were still more like uh, uh, like um so, uh, like Russian, under Russian culture, but he was very European, very polite, very kind. I never saw him being uh, uh, distressed or or uh, like uh, not agreeable. I mean, he was a very uh, very um, polite, nice person.
1: I lived in London at the uh, time that Markov was assassinated, and I clearly remember all the press intrigue about this story and the fact that somebody appeared to have jabbed him with a poisoned umbrella on waterloo bridge at a bus stop
0: it was a shock it was a shock of course it was a shock to all of us at the uh at the radio because uh, we felt uh, of course he, he 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 was uh preparing a series of programs about uh, the Bulgarian uh, leader, uh, party leader. But we all did some kind of Solzhenitsyn, pr- programs on Solzhenitsyn, of, you know, forbidden stuff. Uh, we were distressed.
1: Now, around this time, uh, you meet Oleg, who has a massive impact on your life.
0: Uh, yeah. Oleg had a friend in, in London, a defector like himself, and uh, a very simple man, a carpenter, Uh, But still, uh, he was a Russian and he was fun. And Oleg used to come to London uh, once uh, once every two years uh, because he shopped at Harrods. He exchanged his um, wardrobe every two years. And also he liked uh, to collect stamps. He was a philatelist. So uh, he came to London. It was his routine trip to London. Uh, and also, you know, he he liked the Playboy Club. So he came to to, to London and he stayed with Vladik. And uh, uh, Vlad was trying to arrange some kind of company for the evening. The, I basically rejected, uh, Vlad was maybe around 40, Oleg was um, 34. So I basically rejected men of this age. They were too old for me. So um, uh, I uh, rejected uh, the invitation. For the evening, but they were adamant. In the evening, they—I um, I, I already had uh, my own studio flat in the uh, in Judd Street, and they knew the address. I—I I think uh, Vlad did some carpenter work for me before, so they knew the address, and um, they knocked at my door. So I opened the door, and then I couldn't escape them. Vlad came with Oleg, and he—he he said, "Get dressed, we." We are going out, <laughs> so we went to Playboy.
1: What were your first impressions of uh, Oleg?
0: He was like a typical slop. um not too tall, but very broad shoulders. And I saw his shoulders from the back when we were when we were getting into Vlad's car, and I felt protected behind those shoulders. A young girl without appearance and being on her own in London, I felt, when I saw him from the back, I felt protected. He was very, very qu- a quiet person. He didn't speak much. Uh, he um, gave the impression of a very confident person. So all in all, I I, I, I liked him.
1: I've read one of your descriptions of him. Is he looked like a Russian Alain Delon.
0: Absolutely, everybody, the girls were behind him. Uh, it was terrible. Everybody wanted, he, you know, we were not too many Russians or Russian speaking, let's put it that way, uh, a better explanation, not too many russians speaking persons in, uh, in Europe at that time, maybe all in all, maybe 500. So, and that's maybe even too much. Uh, but uh, if somebody wanted to date, A common, like from from the Soviet Union, there wasn't too much choice. The girls were behind uh, behind him, uh, girls that were older than me and more experienced. And I guess this is what turned Oleg off uh, from these uh, women. Uh, He was uh, not in a rush. He wasn't. He he was uh, not just. Like uh, uh, a Russian teddy bear, they also called him. Uh, but he was making girls uh, run crazy. And uh, I knew uh, w- w- once we already learned each other, and I, I asked, uh, you know, asked uh, the people around. I, 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 I was doing a little bit of my research. Well, I understood that I, I really. Shouldn't talk to too many people about uh, learning him. It was like a, before it happens, like b- before we marry, I shouldn't tell anybody. Just I should uh, keep it secret. Because in fact, we married in Campton Hall two weeks later. It took us only a fortnight. Wow. To go. it was like, yeah.
1: That's incredible. He was in
0: a rush. That's incredible. <laughs>
1: just a bit of background on oleg how did he escape from the soviet union and end up at radio uh, liberty
0: from what i knew and from what every everybody knew at that time was that he was this brave salesman on a military ship um with uh, his family having a very strong communist and army background Uh, so an officer's uh, son who uh, uh, served on a, a Russian military sh- uh, ship? Who escaped in the how to say in in uh, in English? Uh, Dar es Salaam. It's the United something waters of <laughs> anyhow. Dar es Salaam. It's um, no the coast of Egypt. They were in the neutral waters opposite the Egyptian shore, according to what we know and um he was um because he was uh privileged on the ship like he he explains uh, coming from such a family he he was responsible for monitoring the anti rocket uh, missiles missiles And to do that, he had uh, the uh, he was given the uh, geographical location map, so he knew exactly how far Libya uh, was away, you know, the border to Libya. So he could plan his uh, escape in the neutral waters, but opposite Egyptian Egyptian coast, which he uh, first reached after he swam several miles in the water uh, at night, you know, in the dark. And and at dawn, um, he crossed the border to Libya. He knew the direction because he had those uh, uh, maps previously. He he, um, uh, crossed the border to Libya and uh, there with the help of... um, Bedouins, he spent several days before they actually showed him the way uh, to the British camp. He was picked up by the Brits in the beginning, in Libya, and he stayed with the the, uh, British army uh, um, in the first uh, days of his um, questioning. And then, um, from what I understand, he's uh, he's talking quite fondly of the British colonel. Um, in his book, he's talking quite uh, fondly of the British colonel. Oleg just—he was not dressed properly. So before the the Brits turned Oleg over to the American, um, he got co- clothing from the British uh, British colonel. You know, he he talks quite fondly of, of the British, but the reason why he couldn't stay in Britain is because I think at that time uh, the British Prime Minister was planning a trip to to, to the Soviet Union. And um, so uh, it was uh, kind of a risk, a bigger risk to accept a defector from the Soviet Union. So it was... Uh, so the, the British intelligence suggested to Oleg that if he didn't mind, they would turn him over to the Americans, who didn't mind having uh, having uh, a rift with, with the Russians because they were enemies anyhow, Soviet Union and the US, USA. How
1: did he end up at Radio Liberty?
0: So the Americans took him by... Um, military plane to Frankfurt, where he was examined for six months and interrogated to make sure that he was a real uh, defector. And he describes uh, the, 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 these uh, six months very extensively in his book. And as, after he passed all the exams and the Americans were confident about him, they started looking for a job for, for him. And uh, it was just the time when um, Radio Liberty in Munich was looking also like the BBC for new personnel. So it was uh, the American intelligence at Frankfurt, uh, American intelligence officers who actually gave him this employment at the radio. So basically he was there man uh, man uh, at the radio from the beginning. Most of the American uh, American bosses or American personnel at the radio were former military, anyhow. So, and all it was between uh, the first ones who joined Radio Liberty uh, before um, other emigrants were. There. Uh, recruited, but they never had the same rank because they were just immigrants and Oleg passed passed, uh, uh, the examinations uh, uh, at the American uh, military intelligence, you know, with the military intelligence, obviously. He was a different rank, which um, many uh, employees of the radio later couldn't understand. He didn't have an American American citizenship. That's why he officially he was not employed by uh, the the American intelligence. But uh, this was the only difficulty. And what what role
1: was he doing when he met you?
0: Uh, When we met, he was already uh, chief of the news, of the Russian news. But Americans liked stable, like uh, f- stable uh, people with families and children. So uh, when we when he ma- when we married, it gave him kind of uh, a push. And very sh- soon he was offered uh, uh, the job of the senior editor of the Russian service, which was the highest. Uh, the highest rank uh, that a non-American could reach, or could be at the radio in the Russian service.
1: And what's the difference between Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe?
0: These are two different, in in one building, but two different activities. Uh, radio Free Europe is was broadcasting to the European countries of the Soviet bloc, or Radio Liberty was broadcasting in all languages of the Soviet Union. I mean, Russian, including all republics, Georgian, uh, Ukrainian, to all the republics.
1: Oleg is based in Germany, uh, so you have to move to Germany with him?
0: Um, It was our choice. Uh, uh, We could have stayed in London. It was our choice because I felt after we married, I felt that I want to change. But uh, I was playing into Oleg's uh, gate because he needed me for what what happened later. He needed me to be completely dependent on him. So basically, uh, when I said that I would prefer him not to take over the job at Radio Liberty London office, but rather I would give up everything and join him in Munich, uh, it suited him. I quitted my job at the BBC. I uh, sold my studio in Judd in, in Street, or rather I gave an power of attorney to sell it. It was sold shortly after I already moved to Munich, uh, and the ma- money was transferred to me then from London. But um, the biggest uh, mistake was, or the biggest thing was that I was in, um, I was entitled to, to a British passport in a year if I stayed in England. Uh, this was making me a little bit sad, unhappy. So Oleg said, don't worry, I will arrange for you to have a German passport or an American, whatever you prefer. This shouldn't be a problem. So basically... And I made myself completely dependent on him. How did
1: he tell you that he was working for the KGB? Can you describe the moment? <sighs> Don't miss next week's episode where we hear more about Svetlana's life as the wife of a KGB spy. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week.